Welcome to Yes, X or No Audio. This is going to be a rant. Slightly disorganised. Well, I think I've got it mostly in order. The motivation for it is that I'm hunting around the net, looking for articles, um, doing analysis on the presentation that um, Russian Federation President Putin gave at the Valdai Discussion Club back on Thursday. Right now it's uh, Saturday, October the 29th, middle of the day in Europe. So I've been hunting and I can find shit fucker all actually. There's bugger all out there on the internet um, doing decent analysis or any analysis actually of this speech, which very much surprises me because in my opinion, this is one of the most significant political speeches of many decades. And the reason I believe that it's so important is probably because I've got a limited view of geopolitics. But the thing I've been writing about for the last year and a half, um, many topics, but this is a, a theme I return to, is the rise of China and its uh, alliance with Russia. And, and these are expressed in uh, two key organizations. The oldest of which is called the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Uh, and the next major one to come is the BRICS group. So that's Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, which is a very significant trading block. To understand what this is all about, we need first to understand US neo-colonialism. To understand that, the key resource is uh, a publication, which was a book, and you can also find it uh, in sort of video presentations by a man called John Perkins. It's called Confessions of an Economic Hitman. Find it either as the book or, you know, hour or so presentations on YouTube and other places. Find it, learn about it. I'll give you the summary. It goes like this. After the Second World War, the, what, the, what happens is the US is pressuring the existing colonial powers to release the, their minions, you know, let the vassals have a, a bit of freedom. And there are political reasons for that, which is, you know, a degree of, you know, we, we you know, free, free the slaves, la, 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 la. Really what's going on is that the US at that point in time uh, is 50% of the world's economy. Uh, and they have the power to be able to form their empire. What they do is very different to what the uh, European colonial powers did. European colonial process basically was maritime powers. You turn up in some place, you take over the bloody country, and then you mine their resources and get the, get the slaves to do it for you. It's quite nasty, but very effective. There are variations thereof too. You know, the, the Brits, for example, they, they would also do things like, you know, install, uh, they build roads and railways, easy to ship the minerals around that way. And then they would also install governments, which they completely control. But at least they would, they would have bicameral parliaments and, you know, there would be courts and, you know, they, they'd, you know, build maybe hospitals and schools. But what they were really doing was getting their fingers on the core mineral or other natural resources that they needed and wanted. And the same is true for the rest of the, the um, 
how much they assisted the local population varies per empire and over time and la la la. But that was the basic old colonial approach. The American neo-colonial approach is quite different. It's about economic power. And uh, Perkins talks about it. So first of all, there'd be an approach to a, you know, a country and say, oh, we think this is a good idea. And if the country says, no, we've got other priorities at the moment, then that's when Perkins would turn up. And the, his job was to get them to take out loans, usually supplied by the IMF. And those loans would be sufficiently large that the, 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 um, the nation would never be able to pay them back. And uh, indeed, they'd probably have trouble with the loan repayment schedule. It was all a bit of a corruption bribery scheme, actually, because what there would be, okay, what we're going to do is build a, um, uh, you know, a uh, coal-fired power plant for you, right? That, of course, is going to be done by Bechtel or whichever U.S. corporation is going to do it. But we need local industry support as well. And so, you know, the, the labor force or some other major parts of the construction would be done by companies that were owned by the, you know, the, the you know, political leading groups in the country. So they'd get their cut of the loan. It was all fucking horrible. But in the end, what would happen is the country couldn't uh, repay its uh, loan schedule. And so the IMF had come in and say, oh, we can see that you're having trouble. We could restructure the loan, but we're going to put some conditionalities on that, which basically amounted to you need to sell your public infrastructure to U.S. corporations. And it's just like playing playing Monopoly. Everybody wants the waterworks and the railways because they're very cheap to buy. And every time people land on it, you get money back. Good investment long term. But in the real world, it's much different much worse because if you control the telecommunications infrastructure and the water um fresh water supply and you know public transport and other you know key public assets that means you have leverage over the political space which enables you to control the politicians so this is the 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 american neo-colonial approach the the key, the, the, the purpose in the end is for US corporations to make money. They want access to various national uh, natural resources, primary produce. It might be mining, it might be wood, it might be, who cares? But that's what it's about. A, a good example is the coup in Guatemala in 1954, which was about ensuring that the United Fruit Company could continue to grow its bananas. You know, it, it, old stuff. If you want to understand the real story, uh, going back even earlier, look at um, Major General Smedley Butler. Um, find out what he was talking about. War as a Racket was his pamphlet, as he understood uh, what it was all about. In fact, he there's a great line he said, um, uh, whichever was the you know U.S. gangster who who you know controlled you know three areas in 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 the U.S. He said you know these guys are pittance. You know I was a gangster running on three continents. Because he understood in the end what he was doing. Anyway, that's so. First phase is okay. Diplomatic approach that doesn't work. Okay, then we'll get them into debt. You know, and if they won't do that, as Perkins says, there come the jackals, and then you end up with coups or whatever. And if even that doesn't work, then it's you know we throw in the military, and that's you know Smedley talking about that stuff. So that's this is the way that the u.s has run its um empire now in parallel with that at the time you've got the you know the soviet union and its communist ideology and so there's a there's a a political battle happening at the same time but at the at the lower level the, the other level of analysis is about colonialism and you could look at um the communist uh expansion 
in the same way. I think the Russians believed in uh, communism as a political ideology, but they were also interested in ensuring that they had sort of buffer states around them as well. So it's a security concern as well. Anyway, so that's the, that's the first lens in which to look. So let's now look at globalization. So what the US corporations want to do is to lower their labor costs. So they want to move their production from the US into places where there's cheap labor, and that is China and Southeast Asia. So this begins in the 90s, uh, and this is great for them because it means the labor costs go down, therefore the production costs are cheaper, and therefore uh, they can sell the goods at a, uh, at, you know, keep the prices low in the US, even though the US, nobody in the US is making more money, right? The, the wages are stagnant with respect to um, inflation. So they keep the cost of the goods affordable by offshoring the production into Southeast Asia. So this, so China sort of gets on board with this and their strategy is to transition their economy from being dominantly uh, primary and largely agrarian <coughs> and increase, sorry, increase their manufacturing capacity, i.e. when the factories are built and the Chinese workers work in them, China wants to retain, they want to learn how to build these factories and also, you know, retain the, the, the physical factory when, you know, the company leaves. <clears throat> Excuse me again. So that's what's going on. And through this process, China manages to, there's other parts to it as well, but China manages to elevate hundreds of millions of its citizens out of poverty. That It's a miracle what they did, you know, from the sort of 1970s onwards. It's quite an amazing story. The other thing that happens is that <clears throat> the... Uh, there's benefit to uh, the other uh, Southeast Asian economies as well. So, but what happens is it hollows out the, the US's um, uh, manufacturing sector. So certain industries are retained like you know, cars and, and, and so forth, but a lot of the, the core manufacturing disappears from the US, which is a disaster for them. Anyway, so this neo-colonial enterprise is going on. And then you have the, the big inflection point, which is the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Now, the war in Afghanistan was one of the reasons for that. And as I'm sure you know, the US and the Saudis were funding the Mujahideen to fight the uh, socialist government in Afghanistan, which was making great progress on educating um, the population and emancipating the rights of women and have a look at pictures of uh, Kabul in the uh, early um, in the mid 70s right to late mid to late 70s before the war kicks off we're doing quite well anyway um, so the US the the Soviet Union collapses uh, or is disbanded to be true about it what follows is a decade of disaster for Russia under the drunken puppet of Yeltsin. The US 
corporations come in, the Chicago, the Chicago boys, and they liberalise the economy and, and um, you know, Russian oligarchs buy up a lot of public assets and the, um, the American corporations <clears throat> come in and get their fingers in the pie too. And it's a, a disastrous time for Russia. The average life expectancy for men is lowered by five or six years during this period. And a lot of this is due to suicide. It's a disastrous period. Then what happens in 2000 is that Yeltsin picks Putin as his successor. And nobody quite understood who Putin was and what the hell was going to happen. I don't know how the US allowed this to happen. But it does occur. And Putin looks at this situation in Russia and goes, everything's gone to shit. And he's a nationalist, and what he wants to do is rebuild Russia. So I believe that something analogous to the following happens. He gathers all the oligarchs together, puts them in a room, and says, you have two choices. Choice number one, you can be involved in the rebuilding of Russia. Choice number two, you can take your money and fuck off, and you're never coming back again. Choose wisely. So some oligarchs stay and get involved and other oligarchs piss off, take their money with them. And that is why you end up with Russian oligarchs living in London, buying Chelsea Football Club and so forth. And if you want to move your assets around, one of the ways to do that is to buy, you know, expensive property and uh, welcome Donald Trump. You know, <laughs> so he's, he's linked into this too. He's not a dominant player, but that's part of how, you know, oligarchs move their money around. Anyway, so... During the 90s, what's happened uh, is that a lot of the, the manufacturing capacity of Russia has been really hollowed out. They've lost the ability to, do, to produce a lot of important things. And so these areas need, these industries need to be rebuilt, and there's other industries that are sorely needing an investment, and that's where the oligarchs come in, right? So... Obviously, Putin's in charge of redirecting the government, but they're, what they're trying to do is, you know, keep the population happy and, you know, get that sorted out. But they need investment in various industries to rebuild them and so forth. And so this process goes on. Then late 2001, you have the 9-11 event. Bang. I'm not going to go on about it now. Trust me, unless you've done a lot of research into 9-11, you don't understand what happened. It's a complicated and fascinating event and dastardly as well. Anyway, the US uses that as an excuse to go on and run on a war rampage. They invade Afghanistan, um, and then the Iraq war happens. But there is a preceding war that actually really matters, and that's in 1991, the first Iraq war. So Saddam Hussein calls up his American, you know, uh, diplomat, whatever, and says, look, we've got a problem. Kuwait are slant drilling uh, into our oil fields, right? They're doing diagonal drilling, through, across under the border and, and, and taking our oil. Um, what do you think we should do about this? And the uh, American advisor says, well, this is a regional problem, uh, and, um, you know, and therefore it should be solved between regional, you know, the local people. So you work out how to solve that. And Hussein says, so it's a regional thing and, you don't, you, and we solve it here, right? And because Hussein was a freaking dictator and a complete bastard i mean he did run a he kept his population happy enough by providing you know public health services and education and all that sort of but he was a 
political thug. So he invades. Uh, well, he tries to convince the Kuwaitis to stop doing this shit, and they say, "Oh, well, yeah, no, everything's fine. Our facilities are here, and no, no, we're not doing that." La la la. And he says, "Well, fuck you," and he invades the bastards. Now, then you have this beautiful thing with uh, this uh, woman in front of Congress talking about, you know, throwing babies out of incubators, which is all a complete bloody lie. Um, she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the US and the whole thing was run by a PR op. It was all bullshit. But this is the emotional justification for the war. And this is brilliant because it was a very effective operation run by the run by the US. And what it does is it gets rid of what's known as the uh, Vietnam syndrome. I, the US should not, uh, you know, do wars. It's not a good plan. So they shrug off this restriction. Right? So this happens in, in, in 1991. Of course, the next thing after that is the breakup of Yugoslavia in the, in the wars in 1999. And that's a really interesting thing because Yugoslavia was actually a very successful socialist uh, government. Uh, and of course, Yugoslavia has resources and it's the old game. Like break the country up into smaller parts, easier to control them, get in there, access to the resources... Blah, blah, blah. And there's the political ideology of we don't like socialists and blah, 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 blah. So that's sort of the next one. And then you get the 9-11, bang. And then it's, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq. And of course, Iraq had nothing to do with Al-Qaeda and blah, blah. And trust me, there's no way that Al-Qaeda could have blown up those two skyscrapers. It was <laughs> definitely not. So look into 9-11. It's, it's a very, very key event. So these wars run on. Uh, and then you look at the sequence of them. I mean, there's this classic uh, interview which Amy Goodman from uh, Democracy Now! did with General... Name escapes me at the moment, where he basically says, yeah, yeah, we're going to run uh, uh, seven wars in five years, you know, and it goes like this, you know, uh, Libya, Somalia, Syria, um, blah, 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 and ending up with Iran, you know, and this is what they are planning on doing. It's absolutely batshit fucking crazy. So, and that's because essentially the, the, the neocons, as they call them, um, are, who are essentially the sort of next gen, the sort of the old Cold War warriors of just, you know, the, we've done the, we've got rid of the Vietnam syndrome and let's just use the military, go in there and take shit. So this process goes on um, and you, you know, following uh, Iraq, you end up with Libya. And then you end up with the insurgency in Syria, which is completely funded, uh, no, largely funded by the Saudis. It was planned and organized by the CIA. Look it up. It's called Operation Timber Sycamore. And it was um, supported by Turkey in terms of access from the north. And there's other funding from the UAE and whatever. Of course, the Israelis are involved in there too. Just, you know, okay, we can help you a little bit here. And we don't mind if this happens. In fact, we'd really like, you know, Syria to get a bit smashed up because... You know, we, we got the Golan Heights in 1967, but we wouldn't mind a bit more and we, we want political influence over whichever government turns up there. So as a, anyway, Middle Eastern politics is very complicated. So what happens is the Russians come in to help the Assad government in Syria against this, you know, foreign-funded Islamic Jihad assholes. Why? Because... Russia has only got two warm water naval ports. They are in Crimea at Sebastopol and in Syria at Tartus. So 
and there's a long-term relationship between Russia and Syria because of this naval port, which is so important for them on the, at the eastern end of the Mediterranean. So during that uh, process, they help Assad, you know, defend themselves against these Islamic assholes who are being supplied by um, by the Americans, essentially. The fantastic article by um, Seymour Hirsch, which was published in the London Review of Books because it's so revealing that nobody in the US would touch it. Uh, 12,000 words. Look it up. It's called uh, From from Red Lines to Rat Lines. So just look up Seymour Hirsch, London Review of Books, Red Lines, Rat Lines. You'll find it and read it. It's fantastic. And one of the things it speaks about is it exposes Timber Sycamore, but it also speaks of the weapons being funneled out of the failed state of Libya um, from the conflict in 2011 uh, through Turkey to uh, supply these... Terrorist, Islamic extremist insurgents, right? The moderate rebels, right? Jesus. Russia learns a lot from this, and it also gains a lot of military experience, but it learns about the tactics that are being used by the insurgents. And Russia knows that this is essentially being run by the CIA and the MI6. Don't forget the UK, they're deeply involved in this too. In fact, they were the people who ran the White Helmets, right? who are essentially a media organisation more than anything else. Right? They were there to provide the, the, the horror narrative, right, to keep the war going. So it's a very interesting and complicated thing, but look into that. So um, look up uh, Vanessa Beely and um, what's her name? Bartlett. Anyway, look them up. Two, two women, they did incredible work on um, documenting the fucked up situation with the white helmets and what that's all about. And then if you really want to look into the dirty details of it, look up the, um, the Duma incident, the 2018 Duma incident. And the person who's done the best reporting on that is Aaron Mate. The whole thing was a fucking setup. Um, so there was no chemical attack by the, by the um, uh, uh, Syrian government. Uh, there may have been chlorine used, but if that was the case, it was definitely done by the um, uh, by the uh, insurgents. The whole thing's a fucking setup. Um, anyway, getting back to Russia, there is a very important speech delivered by President Putin to the Munich Security Conference in two thousand and seven, in which he says, "We need to reconsider Europe the European security architecture." And the reason for this is because NATO has been expanding ever eastward, despite all promises made in 1989 um, uh, that they wouldn't do this. Uh, so Putin's been rebuilding Russia. Russia's getting stronger, but he's got these, these security concerns. Uh, and nobody's listening, of course. He's earlier been, after this, they'd assisted the US running after terrorists after the 2011 thing. He calls up, he's, I think he's the first foreign leader to call up Bush and say, right, we're in with you, we'll help you. And they do, they go through Central Asia, they find out, you know, various um, groups and, you know, assist. Um, anyway, so following this speech in 2007, in 2008, the uh, NATO basically says, hey, oh, we, we'd like to invite Ukraine and Georgia to join um, NATO. And you can imagine Putin's livid by this. The next thing that happens is the war in Chechnya. 
which is Chechen at the time is run by um, uh, Shakasvili, who is certainly a CIA asset. Uh, and they say, to him, no, it'll be fine if you do this. Well, maybe we'll come in and help and whatever. And so now, you know, Russia's got a insurgency war happening in in on a in a neighboring state you know and there are of course russian um nationals living in chechnya at the time because it was a previous part of the ussr and this is one of the things that putin's actually very sensitive about which is that millions of of uh russian-speaking people who were part of the ussr end up being isolated they end up in these um the state's that become independent states after the dissolution of the union of the Soviet socialist republics. And they often end up being um, uh, minorities and they get really, you know, they have a hard time. So he's sensitive to this. Um, and so that's like the, 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 the Chechen war. So I, said, I can't remember all the details. Georgian war. It's, it's a precursor to what's going to happen in um ukraine so russia goes in and you know <laughs> overthrows the rebellion or whatever and, and, and with horribly overhanded tactics they haven't their military methods hadn't really evolved terribly much at this time it's quite brutal um but from a political level, I can see these, you know, the encroachment from the east, and now they're probing us from the south. I mean, so they're feeling very threatened. We've just crossed 23 and a half minutes, so now might be a good time for a little break and come back uh, at 23 and a half minutes. So we're going to change continents uh, for a moment and go back and look at the early 2000s to the sort of the period we're up to, which is around, yeah, 2008. In South America. So what you have there is something that's known as the Pink Tide. So you end up with uh, Hugo Chavez in uh, Venezuela. You have the constant situation with uh, Sandinistas in uh, Nicaragua. You have uh, Lula rising in Brazil. And you end up with Evo Morales in Bolivia. So there's a bunch of uh, strong socialist governments emerging in Latin America. And you probably know about something called the Monroe Doctrine, which is to say that uh, the U.S. considers all of uh, Latin America its own backyard, and you can't do shit there without their approval. This is the <laughs> so this is actually uh, pre-neocolonialism. This is back, you know, original colonialism. Um, so this is a socialist movement that's building there. And of course, the US is doing their best to stop this crap because once the socialists get into power, they tend to nationalize, you know, uh, industries. And this reduces the access to the resources that the US companies want, or uh, they have to pay more for them, or they have to pay higher wages or whatever. It, it incurs upon their profits. Can't you understand? So the U.S. run numerous coups against Chavez. He manages to survive those, and he picks his successor, Maduro, who's, you know, been in charge for a while, and they run coups against him with Juan Guaido and all this sort of crap. Um, uh, Lula completes his second term in Brazil, chooses his successor, Dilma Rousseff. They run a coup against her, and now you've got Bolsonaro, this right-wing prick who's running Brazil, although he's about to lose in a few days, to, uh, to Lula in the runoff. Um, 
They run a coup against uh, Morales in Bolivia, although they failed there. They installed a, a sort of Christian fascist group there, but which delayed elections, but finally they couldn't do it anymore. And an election was run and then that thing was pissed off and back to, you know, a socialist government. So all of these conflicts are going on, um, you know, from the early 2000s up to the current day in South America. And this is partially where BRICS comes in. So this is the, you know, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa thing. It's about creating a socialist network uh, amongst the uh, uh, nations of um, South America. And recently you've had applications from Argentina to join BRICS so, or, or the SEO, one of the two. So let's not forget about um, South America. They're involved in this too. Um, in, in fact, it's, it's a key battleground. The two key battlegrounds are actually Africa and South America. Because if you look at what China is trying to do with its Belt and Road in, Initiative and the integration efforts across Asia, so this goes back to Mackinder and the One World Island or Heartland theory. If you pull, if you take out your Mercator map and you pull back a bit and you squint your eyes, you'll see there's only two big islands on this planet, and they are North and South America. That's one island, and then uh, Asia, Europe, and Africa. That's the other island, and it's the big island. So Mackinder's theory is that if you control uh, the big island, the supercontinent. Then you control the world. That's the theory, and of course the um, the Western world know about this, and they understand that this is a major threat. Their approach to to controlling the world was with maritime powers, right? The problem is, if a land power takes over, there's sort of nothing you can do, uh, and that is essentially what China is doing with the Belt and Road Initiative, or BRI. And the organisation that's running it is the Shanghai Cooperation Organisation. And what they are trying to do is build land-based corridors and sea-based corridors. So they're building railroads and ports. And to do that, they're, in, they're you know, setting up agreements with, with nations that are joining the SEO and they're investing in their economy and in terms of roads and railroads and um, telecommunications infrastructure. And also, no doubt, you know, some humanitarian side of that, hospitals, schools, this sort of stuff. And of course, the real goal here is to make sure that make sure that they have a stable trade network. And what they're really trying to do is to uh, gain access to the primary resources that are available in these countries in um, Asia, because they want them for their manufacturing. And then what they're going to do is, you know, assist these nations in building um, uh, manufacturing uh, industries, and they will be the dirtiest of the manufacturing industries. Uh, and then. Essentially, what China will do is get rid of all these dirty manufacturing industries out of China, put them in Central Asia so that they can say, look, Green New Deal, we're all great. Um, and then they you know, have access to the produce of those. So they'll get their steel from wherever they build the steel plants um, and not have to worry about producing the steel. You know, you guys mine the ore, ship it to there. You guys make the steel and then we get the steel. And we don't have anything to do with all of that dirty industry. We just make beautiful cars or whatever it is they make with the steel. So that's actually what's going on. But the nations that join up into this will get, um, they will become, they will be elevated. They will end up with these, um, you know, 
secondary industries. They might get tertiary industries, that's for sure. But they'll get secondary industries, and with that, they'll be able to make more money and you know lift their population, do the same sort of thing that the Chinese did, lift their the quality of life for their population. And then hopefully as better technologies come along to control the pollution and rubbish that comes from these dirty industries, they can in, you know sell these high-tech products back to the... Um, uh, the, the countries that are now doing the secondary industries and they make money and the p- pollution goes down. It, you, you could, if you really look at it in the big picture, you can see what's going on. But let's return to Russia. And I promise I will return to this landmark political speech by Putin. But first, we have a few topics to cover. So the first is the 2014 coup in Ukraine. Now, what happens a couple of weeks before the coup is that there's a telephone discussion between Victoria Newland, who's the Under Secretary for polit- no, for Political Affairs in the Secretary of State for you know, Europe and Asia or I don't know, something like this, and she's speaking with Jeffrey Pyatt, who's the U- the U.S. Ambassador in Ukraine, and on the phone they're talking about who's going to be in the next government. They're planning the next government, and they're calling it. No, we don't want him. We want Yats. Yeah, Yats and York. He's the guy. And, and oh, but what, you know, what do you think the the US, the EU will think about this? You know, and New England government, fuck the EU. It's a classic thing. So, of course, if you listen to Ray McGovern, you know, it, you can see that this thing gets exposed, and Putin's going, "All right, cool, that's all popped." You know, they couldn't do that. Now it's fine. So he goes down to Sochi for the Winter Olympics. Everything's going great, right, and then boom. The, uh, the coup happens. And of course, it's kicked off. There are, you know, there's the, the there are valid, legitimate protests happening at the time. Uh, and the, but the sort of strong arm is the sort of neo-Nazi pricks. And then there are these few snipers that are, that are shooting both at the protesters and at the police. And there were at least two of them and they fessed up to it. I think they got paid five thousand US dollars, or anyway, pittance, to create all this shit. And in the end, it's the it's the thugs, the neo Nazis or Nazis, call them what you want, Stefan Bandera worshipping thugs, that then take over the parliament. It's a absolute straight up coup d'état, but not by the military, but by these violent right wing, you know, fascist groups. So that's what goes down. It's like you've got to be bloody killing, kidding me. So now we have to, to, to switch back a little bit in history and go back to Catherine the Great. So she's expanding her you know, land-based uh, empire while all of the Europe's doing maritime-based empires. And one of the things she does is moves into uh, Crimea. Um, uh, and then, of course, there's the Crimean War between you know, France and the UK against Russia, 1800 and whatever, look it up. Um, because they don't want... Russia to expand, of course. You know, it's like, Jesus. Um, so Catherine the Great, you know, th- th- I think it turns out they lose in the end, but in the end they win because they sort of take over the area and the Russians build the city of Odessa. Um, Kiev has been an ancient trading port for years. You go back to the Vikings who managed to work out how to run trade through the Russian uh, rivers down the Dnieper to k- past Kiev on the way to Constantinople. It, like, it's at least a thousand years old, all this stuff. Anyway, so you have the coup going down. And, and what, what's happening is that Russia is goes, oh, fuck. You know, because they're only, well, their only Russian warm water port is in Sevastopol, which is on Crimea. 
and Crimea had been transferred from the Russian Soviet Socialist Republic to the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic during the USSR. And it didn't really matter because it's just a little land exchange amongst the greater union. Um, but now that, that once the Soviet Union um, is dissolved, uh, you know, it, it ends up with Ukraine. But the people in Crimea have they don't give two shits about Ukraine. They're Russian. They've been Russian since the well, not dominantly Russian, but there was a significant Russian population there. Not you know after the the expansion into Crimea under under Catherine the Great. It's a beautiful place. During the summer, you build a holiday house. You go down there. The Russians they love it, right? And then after the Second World War, in which both Ukraine and the Crimea get their asses. They get murdered, essentially, by the, by the Nazis, uh, assisted by Stefan Bandera, the lovely guy, right? killing gypsies and Jews and, and Ukrainians and whatever, communists, anything, because, you know, Nazis. So the, Russia wins the Second World War. And if you don't know who really won the Second World War, do some research on it. The US and the UK, the UK did brilliant resistance. They stayed alive for long. That was they, good on them. Good stuff, and eventually the U.S. you know gets involved, and they finally, finally set up the Western flank. But all of the real battles are going on the Eastern Front. The question is, you know, when did uh, the Wehrmacht lose the Second World War? Some historians would say it was when their, I think it was the Sixth Army, um, you know, gave up outside of um, uh, Stalingrad. Others would say it was when they failed to take Moscow, which was you know the year before. You know, anyway, fascinating history. But essentially, the Russians won the Second World War due to greater production capacity than the um, the Wehrmacht. Right? So after the Second World War, the absolute who, the great wartime leader Stalin, who was actually a complete bastard, he basically purges the indigenous population, which were the Tatars, out of Crimea. So by this stage, it's dominantly Russian. And so the position now is several generations of people who are, who are essentially Russian, speak Russian, think Russian, are Russian, living in Crimea, which technically is Ukraine, who cares? And their common history is fucking getting their asses kicked by the, you know, by the Nazis and then defeating them. And, they, and then they look at, at what has, what's happening in Kiev. They see the coup. They understand who the assholes are behind it, which is obviously the US. But then their local allies are these bloody Bandera-worshipping Nazis. So, you know, so a bloodless um, uh, sort of, well, you, you wouldn't call it a coup because no government there, but there's a rejection of the security. They kick all of the Ukrainian security forces out of um, uh, Crimea, like fuck off to the next oblast, or we'll kill you. You know, so the security forces go, and there's a security vacuum. Russia comes in, they hold a plebiscite, and blow me down. Ninety-five percent of the people vote to join Russia, or it's ninety-seven percent, or it's eighty-four percent. Who cares? It's vast majority of people there are Russian, and they want nothing to do with the Ukrainians, and especially not nothing to do with the Bandera worshipping Nazis who are now part of the government. So that's what happens in. Um, in, in Crimea, and it pretty much has to happen because that's where the, the, the warm water naval port in Sevastopol is. So the next alarming event that happens is in Odessa. So there's a protest running against the new Kud government in Kiev, and a bunch of thugs turn up to sort of counter-protest 
the protesters, and they push them back into the trades union building there where the protesters seek refuge, uh, and then they just light the bloody building and they burn 50 to 80 people alive. This is in 2014. At the same time, or earlier, very soon after the, the coup government is installed, one of the things they do is they outlaw the teaching of Russian in um, Ukrainian schools. Further reprisals come against the, um, the Russian-speaking uh, peoples in the form of denial of social services and pensions. And a whole bunch of things happen. And basically, the, the resistance begins in, I think it was Luhansk, and quickly, it's Luhansk and Donetsk that sort of unify because they don't want anything to do with these. They can see the threat of these Nazi pricks. And so they set up a, a resistance. And of course, they're assisted by Russia. They're fucking Russians in, the, in their language and thinking. And, and they've got relatives in Russia. I mean, they're very interrelated people. They're all Slavs, dominantly uh, uh, Christian Orthodox Church. I mean, there's a very, very close cultural relationship, genetically, linguistically, religiously, etc., so, of course, the Russians are assisting them to resist. And then you end up with, essentially, an eight-year civil war. <coughs> Russia really tries to solve this problem, and the solution was the Minsk II Accords. And the job was for uh, France and Germany to assist the implementation of the Minsk II Accords by Ukraine um, to resolve this problem. And it was a reasonable solution that amounted to a couple of, you know, constitutional adjustments which give autonomy to the Donetsk and Lugansk people's republics. Well, they weren't republics then. They were going to be oblasts and still part of Ukraine. Um, of course, Crimea was going to be lost. There's no way Russia was ever going to give that back. Uh, but, it could, you know, Ukraine could have held that all together. The Ukrainians signed up with no intention ever of going through with this. And we know this now. So this was a sort of delaying tactics. And what you have there during the, the eight-year civil war is the, the NATO and the US, led by the US, arming and training uh, and building the armed forces of Ukraine. And Russia just attempting to assist the, uh, the, the, uh, the well, they, the Lugansk and Donetsk did hold referenda and declared their independence and went crawling off to, to Moscow and, and said, Look, we really want to join you. Would you? Would you please? And and Putin's going. No, 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 no. We want the Minsk to Accords. This is the solution. And the other part of the constitutional amendment was for Ukraine to declare that it would never join a military alliance. I, not NATO or Russia or anyone. We're just going to be independent. Hello, we're like Austria or Switzerland or, well, how for example, Sweden used to be. So, this is the background. Right, so there's the history of Crimea, so you understand what that's about. And then you've got the declaration of these republics um, and so forth. And the, yeah, then what happens in February, early February of 2022, is a really large buildup of, of uh, soldiers and associated uh, um, uh, equipment on the border. Or on the line of contact, as it was called. And this was all being monitor monitored by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. And if you want to know about the details about what happened over those few days, look back in my archives. I followed this day by day by day, doing graphs and plots and maps and so that you can understand what happened. There was a massive build-up. 
And I didn't know about the build-up, but I knew about the shelling. There is a tenfold increase in shelling that happens in a period of a few days. Now, the Russians obviously knew about the amount of forces that were there. You combine a build-up in forces with a massive artillery bombardment, and any military commander will tell you this is the preparation for a massive operation. It's obvious what's going to happen. What's going to happen is going to be a small-scale repeat of World War II. These Bandera-worshipping fascists are going to basically... First of all, there's going to be a bloodbath, and then they're going to run basically a genocide. So what's the result of that going to be? There's going to be a massive uh, refugee inflow into Russia, which Russia can handle. Big place, lots of people, cool and groovy. They can handle that. But what's going to happen then is they're going to end up with an aggressive Ukraine as a controlled by the US right on their border. And then what's going to happen is they're going to install missile silos like they have in Romania and Poland. And this is just intolerable for Russia. So you have to understand that, that one of the things that Putin has been concerned about for a long time are the Russian ethnic and Russian speaking peoples who became isolated and, and often minorities in the countries that became independent after the dissolution of the USSR. If you look at the resolution of the Georgian problem uh, and the Chechen war and so forth, is that you end up with these micro-enclaves established, uh, South Ossetia and Chechnya, uh, territories that are carved out of Georgia and become part of Russia because they're dominantly uh, Russian ethnic and Russian speaking. So the same sort of thing is, he was sort of, this is the Donetsk and Lugansk situation. So Putin is sensitive to these people. You know, he lost his um, elder brother during the the siege of uh, St. Petersburg during the Second World War. His elder brother died. It was, it, look, look up the, the siege of, of um, it was called Leningrad then, I think, St. Petersburg. It, it is horrific. Anyway, you have to understand some of Putin's background. So he's left with this shit situation where there is about to be a massacre and a genocide and then he's going to have an aggressive um, uh, state on his border. They've already, NATO's already expanded into the Baltic states of Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia. They've, you know, come into Romania. Fucking disaster is coming. I mean, what's he going to do? That is why he invades. This is what it's all about. But because he's a bloody lawyer, the first thing he does is he takes the letters that are requesting from Lugansk and Donetsk self-declared republics to join Russia. And he says, all right, we'll sign that off. And this went through the parliament, by the way. Two bills were put forward, both of them massively supported. So he signs off on that. And then parallel requests are, and please give us humanitarian assistance. Let's just put that in air quotes, shall we? Human- well, just general assistance. And so he says, yeah, we'll do that, right? So ambassadors are sent to set up the diplomatic relationships and then income the, the, the assistance in terms of, um, <clears throat> of obviously, um, armaments and, and, and so forth and humanitarian aid. And wham, in comes the, the Russian army. You know, so that's what this is all about. If you don't understand that, you've really missed the plot. Don't listen to the fuck the fucking U.S. media is saying it is complete bullshit. I mean, it's not all bullshit, but but it's it's completely spun in one direction. You have to put put yourself in Putin's shoes. What the fuck are you gonna do? And he's been pressured to do this for years by 
the many of the Russian people and members of the the um, the Security Council, which is the major major policy bo- uh, uh, forum in in Russia. So, and he's really resisted this because he was trying to get the Minsk two agreements to work. Then he it's like, okay, we keep Crimea, some autonomy there. They can look after themselves, and and as long as Ukraine remains independent, like okay. That, that takes the temperatures down and we can handle that. But no, the Ukrainians, under the instructions of the Americans, obviously decided to fucking up the ante, bomb the crap out of uh, Donetsk and Lugansk and, you know, put a whole lot of forces on the border. And this is it. This is a completely provoked situation. And Putin has got nothing he can do about it. But what he does, it, as far as I'm concerned, otherwise what's going to happen is a massacre, you know, and then a genocide. That is what was going to happen if he didn't act. And I don't know why people can't see this. Anyway, sorry, I'm ranting there. I'll get back to the story. So pulling out of these small, well, national-based events and getting, looking back at the wide geopolitical picture, right? You've got these two organizations, BRICS, which is now expanding. I mean, you've got applications to join it from um, Saudi Arabia, um, uh, and of course, Turkey wants to be a part of everything. Uh, if you look at, and then really, so there's two organizations. BRICS is, and the other, you know, who wants to join these organizations, like Argentina, Brazil's already a, a member. So the, at the at the sort of big geostrategic level, you've got a, an organ, a group of countries forming in two major organizations, BRICS and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, that are amalgamating against the um, US neo-colonial NATO armed bloc. This is what's happening, right? And that's why the two uh, real battlegrounds are Asia and uh, Latin America. Sorry, not Asia, but um, Africa and Latin America. It's it's all about resource control and and so forth. So this is the story. And this is why that speech is so important, because it's a formal declaration of what's been going on for the last 15 years. You take the the pink tide in Latin America, you take the construction of the SEO and China's Belt and Road Initiative, and then you look at uh, the parallel organization from Russia called the uh, Eurasian Economic Union, and then you've got into the SEO, you end up with India and Pakistan and Iran and the central stands, except for one that I keep forgetting about. And of course, you've got Kazakhstan and Mongolia. And so this Asian bloc is forming under this umbrella organization and the, the underdeveloped countries in Asia will benefit from it as I outlined earlier. It's a good deal for them. There are downsides as well, as I said. Um, you know, and then you've got the Latin American, and then the, the other battleground, of course, is, that, is Africa. And it, it, the, the war in Ukraine is the thing that kicks this off. It, it, it emerges, it is forced to emerge out of this and that is what this speech is about it's Putin saying look here's the vision what what we do not want to do is replace one hegemon with another we want to set up a, 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 a an international relations environment which is based upon the rule of law 
for a start, which is not the unwritten rules-based order. And we're not interested in doing cancel culture and, you know, you have to be like us or, we, you know, fuck you. It's about respect for cultures and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, underneath, you know, there's a geopolitical control level happening as well. I mean, let's not just be idiots here. But the idea is it's a better alternative than, than you know, putting yourself in debt to the International Monetary Fund and just getting fucked over completely. So it's another, so you look at the parallel instruments that have been set up to replace the instruments of the um, uh, US neo-colonial project. So the IMF gets replaced by the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. And then the US dollar as the global reserve currency gets replaced by a new construct, uh, which will be partially resource-based and basket of currencies. And they're really working on this to try and work out how to do this. And Putin really meant that when he said it in the speech. We need a uh, international trade currency which cannot be controlled by one or a small group of countries. It needs to be something that has lasting value, which means it has to involve things like gold. Uh, and it also needs to be out of the control of a small minority of nations. He's trying to set up a sort of a... Not a completely level playing field, but a much more level playing field, which can't be completely dominated. This is the concept that he lays out in this speech. And it's an appeal to the nations of the world that still retain their independence to some degree. To say, look, if you want to get, your, get yourselves out from under the boot of US neocolonialism, here's a mechanism. You join us, you don't become a vassal. You have a seat at the table. And that's what he was talking about when he was saying that we need to look at the, the power structures within the United Nations and we need to elevate Africa and Latin America minimally. They need a greater voice. And there's a very, there's a, when I was listening to this, I had this thought occurred to me. He's looking into the future and he is seeing an increase in the, if the investments happen, which he's expecting, Af Africa's going to rise. It's got a huge amount of resources and a, and, a, and a population that will grow. The same is going to be true in the elevation of uh, South America. These are going to become trading block entities with greater and greater power. And so what he's, what he's doing is he's saying, all right, let's give them some power. We don't want them fighting for it. Let's give them a seat at the table. Again, to level the playing field. He's trying to set up a situation where, you know, we gave, we helped you out back then. You know, don't be an asshole to us. We've, you know, we've invested in your country. It, it, he's trying to set up a situation which reduces the threats to Russia, so that he can hand over at the end of his thing and say, right, Russia, I rebuilt you out of bullshit. I put you back as a major power on the map, and I've established all of these inter-trade um, inter block and international relations so that you have your security. Grow and prosper. Learn and look after it. That is what this speech is about. And that's why I'm so pissed off that nobody's writing about it. <sighs> End rant. Thank you very much for your attention. And I apologize for how long this has become, but it takes a while. There's a lot of history to go through. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Until next time.